through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Joey Watson here. And yes, you've come to the right place if you are looking for a weekly show with one person's stories. The records behind them. This show is out of the box. It's on your radio, streamed online, and there's uh, your beloved podcast app at your convenience. Today, I've got Glenn Lockich. Glenn is a photographer and a photojournalist with a serious purpose. For 25 years, Glenn has carried the flag of human rights and environmental activism through his camera. It's a passion and a mission that has quite literally taken him all around the world from South Africa to Central Australia, Botswana to Tahiti, and most recently through the Arctic waters, where he was a photographer on the Sea Shepherd vessel, the Bob Barker, putting his life on the line to stop whaling. So we're touring the world on Out of the Box today, so attach your lens, because Glenn, a warm welcome to this show, Out of the Box. Thank you. Glenn, I've met a heap of activists, and I've known a bunch of photographers, some hang around in both circles, but none that I've met have, have married the two quite as completely as you do. I, I wonder, is it even fathom, fathomable for you that one could exist without the other? That uh, uh, photography and, and activism. And activism. Yeah, um, whether they could be split or whether oh, they're of so complete for you. that uh, for, me, for me, no, they're intertwined. Yeah. Um, my photojournalism that I've done over the years, uh, I have uh, pursued, I suppose, through my own uh, life journey and, and I suppose my own development uh, within myself. Um, I feel that as I learn and grow through my life and the things that I find to be true to myself, uh, that is what I try to pursue through my photography, um, and uh, which is important as well too. When you're doing this sort of work, connecting with people, you have to have conviction, uh, as well as when you're doing uh, environmental work as well too. It's got to stem from that sort of place. Sure. We, the pursuit has taken you all around the world, and we'll roll through some of the, the places um, and people that you've worked with uh, throughout this show. But is there a... Is there a grand purpose? Is there an overarching politics to to everything that that you apply to the to the individual situations that you end up taking photos in? Truth and justice, I suppose that's what it's about for me. Um, uh, uh, the my actual recording of the events that I uh, have experienced is uh, I suppose uh, what I see as uh, a record or an archive of uh, what I see as important moments um, and that then becomes a baton hopefully that gets passed on uh, to people into the future to keep the causes going, keep that flame burning. Well, speaking of truth and justice, this is a story that starts in South Africa. Uh, let's let's call this stop one of one of five on this journey that we're going on today. What what political environment were you born into, Glenn? So I was born um, in uh, under the apartheid regime. Um, so for those uh, listeners that uh, aren't fully aware of the politics back then, uh, there was uh, a separation, uh, a hierarchy or tiered uh, society based on race. Uh, in law, um, white people uh, uh, received uh, extra uh, protection and laws by the government, extra rights, um, and uh, black African people were right down at the bottom of the rung. Um, while generally speaking, uh, I suppose it, I, I grew up under a, 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 a regime um, I would call it a fascist regime, um, and um, but I had a very unusual upbringing in South Africa because um, I had family that were uh, fighting against the apartheid system. So I grew up with uh, an uncle that was in jail from 1964 to 1984. How did he get there? Uh, well... Uh, in a nutshell, he was uh, uh, working uh, with Mandela and and uh, the ANC in the late fifties, uh, and he uh, uh, got 
caught up in the second wave of arrests that uh, the South African uh, police made, the secret police, and uh, uh, was put on trial. He was meant to be hanged, um, and uh, he was uh, uh, in the second high command of the uh, military wing of the ANC, Umkonto Wasiswe, uh, which means uh, Spear of the Nation. Uh, and he was uh, uh, jailed basically for 20 years, for the full 20 years. I think he had the last four months off. Uh, but then they came for my aunt as well, um, uh, my mother's sister, and she was tortured uh, and, and then deported uh, out of South Africa. And uh, another aunt uh, brutally murdered by the, uh, uh, the uh, South African government. Um, and uh, we had other, uh, other issues going on with other family members. So that was sort of the environment that I grew up in, which gave me a sense of a political awareness and something uh, that I think grew in me as, as I uh, grew up and matured and started to experience my own life. Um, I'd say that was a strong precursor to what I do. Um, I did uh, 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 visit my aunt who was in exile in Zimbabwe in uh, uh, 99 uh, for the first time and a uh, uh, very inspirational woman and um, yep, that's just, I suppose, just the background. Let's go to our first song for today. We, we want to play a South African artist fittingly. Um, tell me about this song. So I, besides the actual music, which I really like, and it sort of takes me back to African music, which, which I do miss being in Australia. I mean, I've been here, you know, three decades, over three decades. But um, uh, this song does take me back to that period. I think the rhythm of the song, uh, the mood of it, the words as well too. It's about um, uh, uh, primarily about the trains and uh, I suppose the tempo of the music is, is the movement of the trains and the sound of the trains carrying uh, a lot of the uh, mine workers that were transported from their homelands, um, rural homelands, out into the mines where often they uh, would not see their families for a long period of time. Um, and it just takes me back to that period and a, a, a good reminder of what people went through. There's a train that comes from Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho, Swaziland, and the whole hinterland of South Africa. This train carries only the young men and old men who are conscripted to come and work on contract gold mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding metropolis. Deep, deep, deep down in the belly of the earth, and they're digging and drilling for that mighty evasive stone. Or when they dish that mishmash mud food into their iron plates with an iron shovel. Or when they hear that choo-choo train is screaming apart from the far horizon, they always curse the full train that brought them to Johannesburg.
Masekela and Stimela, but today brought in by Glenn Lokic, the photojournalist and activist. Also previously brought in on an episode with uh, another activist, Akala, uh, from the UK. You can, of course, podcast that and this episode um, on uh, your, your podcast app at your convenience or on the uh, FBI radio website. Now, Glenn, we've gone from South Africa through Australia, and now we're in Berlin, and it's the late 80s. How how old are you and, and, and what are you doing there? So I was 21 when I was in uh, Berlin and uh, I was just um, backpacking, taking. I'd done a couple of years of uni, wasn't quite sure whether it's what I wanted to do. Uh, I happened to uh, uh, travel to Berlin uh, and um, there was... A mood or rumours in in uh, in Western Europe of uh, something going on over there. No one was quite sure what. There was no sign at all or indication of the fact that the wall was going to come down. Um, I was travelling with an ex-girlfriend at the time, and um, we decided to go in and check it out. I wanted to see Berlin anyway. Um, I landed up at uh, Checkpoint Charlie. It just happened to purely by chance be the 40th anniversary of Russia's occupation of uh, of East Berlin. And um, uh, back uh, back in those days, uh, um, when you travelled to the so East and West Germany were divided. Uh, Berlin was actually inside East Germany itself and you had West and East Berlin. So you had almost like this island um, of the West uh, which you had to travel through East Germany to get to. So as going in there, you already felt like you were um, within the, the communist regime and you could get a sense of that whole... Uh, um, uh, that communist uh, uh, political environment. So I was at the border uh, with a basic camera um, and happened to... There were a lot of people that were gathering, some of the people that had escaped from from uh, East Berlin into into the West. Uh, other people had gathered uh, at Checkpoint Charlie, which and at that time uh, the uh, Soviet Union and the Western countries had missiles pointing in both directions. It was a flashpoint potentially for a third world war at that period. Um, uh, and uh, the crowd grew, uh, a riot uh, ensued, uh, people shooting flares down the East German guards, 
uh, throwing stuff at them, pulling the fa- pulling on the fence, etc. And I happened to um, uh, get some pictures of what was going on. Uh, walking away from that, once we all got pushed out of the area uh, by the uh, uh, military police, um, I walked away having taken pictures, and this is the days of film, feeling like I had just recorded a moment in history and I uh, walked away from that feeling like a, uh, I was travelling on a wave of history and I thought that's something I would uh, like to do into the future. Came back to Australia and did a photographic course and continued. How did you, how did you carry into it? So you'd made the decision that it was your your calling in some way, without even seeking out the politics. You'd found one of the most tense political moments of the latter half of the previous century. How did you um, manage to sustain that when you got back after your photographic course? Um, well, look, I suppose in that particular moment, it was uh, uh, it was one of those, uh, I suppose, an epiphany on some level where um, uh, it combined my interest in in the um, the technology side of things, the politics side of things, and the visuals, because I knew I was also very interested in visuals, which I hadn't been able to explore in my life up till that point. Um, so when I got back and I did my course and. Uh, the course that I was doing, uh, there were a good few press photographers uh, in the course as well. My uh, teacher at the time had an interest in politics. I started looking into a lot of photojournalism uh, background, uh, came across a lot of photographers that had inspired me, plus my interest, I suppose, in in politics and issues, I started going out and photographing. I think the, one of the first things I photographed was uh, the Sydney Peace Squadron on uh, Sydney Harbour. I went down there with my camera um, and um, uh, someone came across it, a signal to someone that was on a Zodiac. They came across, picked me up and went along uh, for the ride. I suppose that was part of that journey. So you were on the boat. What, what was the Sydney Peace Squadron doing in that period? So that was uh, a lot of the warships that were coming in, especially the big US aircraft carriers, uh, were nuclear-powered and potentially had nuclear weapons or no one really knew. There was a concern by the activists at the time that, you know, uh, under the agreement between uh, the US Navy and Australian government that if there was a uh, nuclear leak that it was up to the US Navy to determine whether they alert the Australian authorities. It was also uh, an anti-war uh, uh, group as well too, which I identified with. Right. So I wonder if um, over the course of those experiences the difference between finding, stumbling upon politics um, and uh, and actively seeking them out with your photography. Um, has the ideology changed? I mean, obviously, you've probably become more competent, but has the broad ideology stayed the same? You talk about the ideology of politics itself. Or, 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 or of the reason that you engage with it with your camera. Right, okay. Uh, well, I don't, I don't follow ideology. I try to keep an open mind with everything I do. I don't, you know, fundamentally believe in... Uh, uh, controlled institutions that don't give people the right to free speech and and free thinking. Um, uh, as Bob Marley said, uh, you know, isms and schisms. Are the, uh, I'm I'm not one for the isms generally. Uh, so, um, look, I suppose through my personal development, which is important as well too. I mean, we all go through that on some level, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Uh, I have pursued issues that I have found connect uh, with what is important, uh, whether it's uh, issues that uh, become large in the moment or issues that I identify with uh, 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 personally. And uh, that in turn uh, places me into positions and keeping an awareness of the news and the politics of the day and the different organisations and the issues, etc., etc., which you've got to keep constantly um, reading about and being aware of and meeting people through, etc. Uh, that then puts me into places, uh, gives you a sense, a sort of a sixth sense, I suppose, in a way of what's going on or what might transpire. Um, I will travel to those places, uh, photograph it, which then in turn inspires me in other ways, 
gets me thinking about other things and that in turn then feeds a, a bit of a, a feedback loop, I suppose, in what I do. Okay, well, let's go to some music now. <clears throat> We're going with um, Bob Dylan all along the Watchtower. I'm very happy about it. What does, what does Bob Dylan mean to you? Bob Dylan's been a big inspiration for me. Uh, uh, I suppose his poetry, I would consider him one of the best poets that that has ever lived uh i find his work very uh, his his songs and his the the meaning of his words uh very inspirational uh, i think he hits the hits the mark with uh what he has to say i don't think too much has changed as far as that's concerned um and uh i started really listening to him a lot in the 90s i was living in a warehouse in Chippendale, uh, which was an ex-photographic studio, and I was living in the old dark room, uh, and I started to just write up his words on my on my wall, um, uh, words that inspired me, and um, I still find every time I put his music on, and this particular song I think is very appropriate for what I do, and uh, always keen to listen to it. There must be some way out of here. Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my earth None of them along the line Know what any of it is worth is Bob Dylan there all along the watchtower the regular listener will know my mother will know that I'm very excited to have Bob Dylan on the show whenever I get the opportunity so I'm incredibly grateful to uh, Glenn Lockhitch the uh, activist photojournalist is my guest on this show out of the box today <clears throat> okay Glenn so now you're you're a full-blown photojournalist with a with a bent towards radicalism and change making so we're in Tahiti uh, and it's the 90s what are we doing in the Pacific? So, I. 1995, the French were at the tail end of their nuclear testing. Um, the There was an international uh, uh, ban on nuclear testing, which used to be above ground, then went underground. And the French were the last country uh, to, to join this. Uh, treaty they said that they wanted to um, uh, explode the last few bombs to finalize their testing to continue their research and that was going to be at Miro Atoll and Fangataufa Atolls in in 1995. So they'd been there for, for 30 years up to that point more or less mm-hmm. the French yep so what sort of impact did that have on on the locals I mean the, the, uh, like this is very um, important history I mm. think maybe some people have uh, some awareness of it, mm. um, but I know I didn't know a, a lot about it. Mm. 
can can we go through a little bit more about the genesis of why why were the French blowing up nukes in the in the Pacific? Well, it's far away from France for a start. It's also what they considered to be a French territory. It's a colonial ter- territory. Uh, speaking to the locals there, there are a lot of people that were that had been pushed off the islands of Muraroa uh, uh, into Papayete, the main town in in Tahiti. And um, uh, there was something like, uh, from memory, about two and a half, three thousand uh, French Foreign Legion that were stationed there. Uh, that's where the tests were happening. Uh, it had affected a lot of the community too. I'd actually befriended um, a man who was a sort of a combined uh, local priest. He was also uh, uh, involved in the local customs, traditional customs, and interestingly enough, ran a cafe, uh, sort of bar restaurant and was also an air traffic controller. Um, and uh, he, beforehand, during the above ground testing, used to be stationed off an island south of uh, Muraroa, him and two other um, uh, people, and their job was to. Um, work out whether the wind was blowing in the right direction and then would alert the uh, the French military and that's when they would do their testing. Two of his friends, the people that he had worked with, um, had subsequently died. Um, so uh, who knows how much nuclear fallout had affected the rest of the, the French islands. There was also at the time, besides the nuclear testing, there was a big push for independence by uh, the local people too because they wanted their island back. Mm. It's... Um I mean, whatever the, the um, medical implications are is one thing. I just think of the psychology of incrementally over your lifetime seeing a mushroom cloud on the horizon. Um, it's a pretty petrifying uh, prospect mm. and something to grow up with as well for mm. a lot of people. Mm. Had you been following the story for a long time before you decided to, to go over? No, I'd once the uh, French had decided to... Uh, to do their last tests, um, which I had read about. Um, I also heard that there was going to be a peaceful march rally uh, by the locals through the island. Uh, there was at the time a Greenpeace boat that was going over to uh, to protest uh, and um, a whole bunch of Australian politicians decided to go, some local people and international people as well. So uh, I decided to get on board uh, in terms of, you know, just getting over there. Sure, but in, the, in, the protests when you got there were anything but... Um, uh, I mean, there was it was writing, right? Mm, yeah. What did that look like? Well, we basically... Uh, the press um, were uh, taken on these mopeds down to uh, what was meant to be a union meeting and a bit of a discussion about what was going on. Suddenly, we were told that the police were coming and we were put back on mopeds and taken along this windy road and suddenly got taken and dropped off right onto the airport runway uh, in between the French riot police, uh, the gendarmes, as well as the local protesters. And so there's on one side you had uh, rubber bullets and tear gas ready to be used. On the other side you had the, the demonstrators with baseball bats and clubs and helmets, etc. And that ended up um, burning down the airport uh, and... Um, uh, tear gas and bullets, rubber bullets are used through the car park, etc. Um, and uh, so I documented that. Were you tear gassed? Yes. W- what's that like? Uh, not pleasant. What happens? <laughs> uh, you get a, a stinging sensation, not just in your eyes and your mouth and just anything that's exposed, but your skin as well too. It's a very hot climate there, so you, you're sweating as well too. So it goes right, and your pores are right open, so it goes right. So we actually, when there, there was, I mean, you deal with it to a certain extent as much as you can, but we did, there was a whole bunch of us when there was a large amount of tear gas, uh, we had to run into some of the houses that were nearby just to try and flush out uh, some of the tear gas, but, you know, just getting back into it to continue shooting. What was the outcome of the protests? Is this a story that has a happy ending? Uh, well, probably not, but they did hold back the um, they did hold back the gendarme for what they did. The reason that they actually uh, burnt the airport down was that uh, they knew that the French Foreign Legion would be arriving by plane. So they basically made the airport inoperable, and so they took the uh, the Foreign Legion ex- an extra uh, day and a half or two days to arrive there. 
so they're pretty much that by that night uh the whole of Papayete was buildings were burning uh riots were ensuing right through the streets which which I was documenting there as well and then by the next day the probably I'd say sort of uh early afternoonish uh these young guys crew cuts backpacks just arrived from all over the place the place is just full by that night, uh, they were all in their riot gear and took the streets back over again. What um, <clears throat> what do we play for Tahiti? What song can we play now? Well, um, this song, uh, one of also another a very inspirational musician, Bob Marley. Uh, the reason I chose this song was uh, as I was retreating from the airport car park, I came up this embankment uh, just to get a bit of a breather. I was coming around a bend, uh, still tear gas everywhere, and I uh, came across these guys that were throwing Molotov cocktails and rocks down at the riot police down below. And uh, as I came across them, I heard this particular song, uh, uh, Get Up, Stand Up um, for Your Rights, uh, Bob Marley playing out of a car, which was right next to these demonstrators. The car door, the passenger front door was open, and as I passed this car... Uh, it's very visually and 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 uh, I found quite a moving moment. There was a woman breastfeeding her, uh, her baby in the front of the car as I came around that corner. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up. Classic Bob Marley there, Get Up, Stand Up, the protest song from the protester and the documenter of uh, protest uh, through his camera, uh, Glenn Lockett. He is my guest on this show, uh, Out of the Box. And don't forget, you can get this episode and a whole bunch of others at your podcast app if you're inclined. Maybe accidentally slide your finger onto the subscribe button while you're there. Glenn, um, now we're going from the Pacific to Africa. 
to Botswana to be exact. What drew you to take up the cause of the Kalahari? Uh, well, I um, I had won a, a photographic uh, a photojournalism prize thing and I was given a ticket to Tahiti, funnily enough, two tickets to Tahiti to a five-star hotel. Uh, for, and uh, I didn't think it was going to be as interesting as the There's time that I've been before. Some serious traumatic irony. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, even though it would have been nice as a break, I thought I'd like to make better use of the uh, the opportunity and the ticket. So I rang up the sponsor and I said, is it possible to change it to somewhere else? And they said, oh, where were you thinking? And I said, well, I don't know yet. I said, can I let you know? And they, I said, uh, they said, well, when are you thinking? I said, well, how long have I got? And they said, look, we'll give you 12 months. And at the time, I was driving a, a cab to support what I was doing, just to stay independent in what I was doing. And I was in actually in uh, not far from here. I was in the back streets of Newtown, listening to the BBC. It would have been about two in the morning. And I heard a story about the plight of the Kalahari Bushmen, um, which struck a chord with me when I was probably about five, six years old in South Africa. My first little project as a kid at school was on the Kalahari Bushmen. It, it, um, something that quite inspired me, um, their way of life, the way they saw things. And uh, the BBC was mentioning uh, um, through a group called Survival International NGO, International NGO, um, that the uh, Bushmen had been kicked off the land uh, out of the Kalahari Desert for for diamonds and um, were placed in refugee camps. So I noted the name of the uh, the NGO and the woman that was speaking, and I stopped off at a public phone and rang international information, got through to the NGO, asked for the woman that I heard on the radio, and she came through. And, and I told her that I was thinking of going somewhere, and is there anything coming up uh, of uh, importance or interest? She said, oh, actually, we happen to be going to through the High Court, taking the Botswana government to the High Court uh, in support of the, the situation, the Bushmen. So I arranged to meet her over there somewhere and just I just to cut a long story short, happened to bump into her in the desert where there was no mobile phone reception. I was out late one night walking through into the car. I don't, I, I'm sorry, <coughs> I, I, I can't cut that story short. <laughs> you have to tell me, how did you stumble upon her in the desert? <laughs> Uh, well, I uh, look. I I, I mean, you, la- you 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 land in Botswana. Mm. You know, you want to mm. um, take some role in documenting mm. the the plight of the Kalahari who are being pushed off their land. Mm. You're trying to make contact with this woman that you found over the radio, mm. and then you stumble upon her in the desert. Mm. Well, um, I when I when I arrived in Botswana, um, I, I actually didn't know exactly where the bushman would be. I had an idea. Uh, I was camping just outside uh, Gaborone, the main town of Botswana, and coming in every day. And I happened to befriend a guy, local guy, that uh, was selling woodcraft um, in this sort of street market, uh, a rusta guy. And uh, he sort of asked me what I was doing there and said, oh, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Can you come back tomorrow? And uh, I went back again and met another rusta guy who uh, was doing some trade with the Bushmen. And so uh, he offered to, he was going into the desert to go and stay with them and offered to um, take me with him. So we hitchhiked and caught, jumped on the back of utes and whatever, and we got dropped off in the middle of the desert. And what, what's the landscape here? What, what, what does the desert look like? So it's um, not that unlike the Australian desert, other than I suppose the colour of the sand. There's scrub, but it's uh, certain areas are quite sparse, and other areas have just got little little bushes. But it is out in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, uh, not nowhere for the bushmen, I suppose. If you know where to get your food and your water, etc. Uh, but they had been placed in camps uh, outside the the game reserve. And the government, the Botswana government, was and still is working with the mining companies to try and extract diamonds. So uh, we happened to be, get, get dropped off at a T-junction. Uh, again, this road was just, there was nothing around. And we were waiting, bumped into a Bushman woman walking past. And then next thing, this the Bushman chief, who was actually working with the government, who wasn't quite liked by some of the, the rest of them who'd been bought out, 
came past in a ute and uh, we jumped on the back and he took us straight into the into the camp. And then uh, we went, I don't know if it was that night or the night after, I was camping with them. Um, I was told not to take my camera out at that stage because there's certain people that could, uh, couldn't could see what I was there for. Um, and um, would, would, Did the Kalahari speak English? Were you able to communicate with them and give them a sense of, of why you'd come to the camp? Um, well, the person that I was traveling with knew them quite well. Right. Um, and um, I most of them didn't speak English and he would translate for me. So he spoke the local, his local language and then he would translate into into uh, uh, the language of the of, of the, um, the the Bushmen. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, so I think it was that night or the next night, whenever it was, he decided, um, his name was Bantu, Bantu decided to go and visit his girlfriend out in some hut somewhere out in the middle of the desert somewhere. And so we went for a walk and afterwards um, we were walking back and came down this, um, this sort of dirt track and saw some lights. This is middle of the night. Um, saw some lights um, in the distance. We thought they were the rangers and I had my camera with me so I had to sort of tuck it away. I wasn't actually meant to be there to be doing what I was doing. And uh, the lights stopped and we stopped and we waited for them and they slowly came towards us and I was trying to get my story prepared, etc. And that happened to be the woman that I spoke to that was on the radio and she said, we're going to the high court tomorrow. We're bringing a truck to bring all the local people, meet us tomorrow morning and I travelled with them then. And how did the campaign go? Uh, well, they, it was quite incredible actually. Uh, you know, a lot of the way the indigenous, the the, uh, the Kalari Bushmen are treated over there is is not that dissimilar to the way indigenous people are treated in Australia. Um, the High Court, uh, it was the the final uh, decision on on that day. It was broadcast live on radio and television. It was almost like the the nation had stopped. It was very interesting for a lot of the local people from a different tribe to actually hear the plight of the Bushmen. I think it was the first time they'd actually come across a lot of the issues that were going on. Uh, even as we entered into the court uh, area, the high court, um, uh, the I remember the board, the the, uh, the guard um, on the boom gate was had the radio playing as well, listening to to the court case, um, and um, uh, they actually won. And so they were potentially allowed back, legally allowed back onto their land, uh, but still today they're kept out of the uh, out of the game reserve that they've been in for uh, uh, many tens of thousands of years. Um, so they still have that plight going. So what do you want to play now, Glenn? What can we play for your time in Botswana? Uh, well, I suppose a song that is <coughs> uh, inspirational probably came at roughly around that period. Um, is a song called uh, 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 Mass Destruction by Faithless. Uh, it's about racism and it's also about inaction. And inaction being a weapon of mass destruction. And I think right now, especially with what's going on on the planet, uh, inaction is what is allowing things to uh, persist. Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're Soraway's son or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son. I have a duty calling on me. You and your sister be brave, my little soldier. And don't forget all I told you. You're the mister of the house, now remember this. And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss. Then I had to say goodbye. In the morning, woke mama with the kiss on each eyelid. Even though I'm only a kid, certain things can't be hit. Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made to go, but left her in the stories untold. I said, Mama, it'll be alright when Daddy comes home tonight. 
Whether long range weapon or suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're Solar Wave Sun or BBC One, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether Halliburton, Enron, or anyone greed is a weapon of mass destruction. We need to find courage, overcome inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. Inaction is a weapon of mass destruction. My story stops here. Let's be clear, this scenario is happening everywhere And you ain't going to Nirvana or Farvana You coming right back here to live out your karma With even more drama than previously <laughs> Seriously Just how many centuries have we been waiting For someone else to make us free <laughs> And we refuse to see That people overseas suffer just like we Bad leadership and egos unfettered and free Feed on the people they supposed to lead I don't need the people to pray and wait For the Lord to make it all straight There's only now, do it right Cause I don't want your daddy Leave your home tonight Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb A wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction Whether you're solar waste sun or BBC One This information is a weapon of mass destruction You could have Caucasian or a poor Asian Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction Whether Halliburton, Enron or anyone greed Is a weapon of mass destruction We need to find Faithless there, the song Mass Destruction, brought in today by Glenn Lockich. For a few moments longer, he is my guest on Out of the Box. The uh, the uh, activist and photojournalist has had a career with the camera for over 25 years. So, Glenn, this last section has more of a roaming geography than the previous ones. Um, we're on a boat called the Bob Barker, and we're representing Sea Shepherd, uh, what, what's our route? Do we have one? Uh, the actual direction route? Yeah, you're talking yeah. About? Do we have a predetermined route, or uh, are, or are we just rolling around the waters looking for <laughs> looking for trouble? <laughs> They're looking for trouble. Um, <clears throat> no. Uh, well, look. Um, what actually happens? I mean, my 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 first the first campaign I went on, uh, I had to go to what was then a secret. Ship. So, so basically, for the listeners that don't know, Sea Shepherd's an anti-whaling uh, um, con- uh, marine conservation organisation. It's not just a t-shirt brand. No, and uh, Sea Shepherd uh, believes in direct action. Uh, they believe that um, actually stopping what is going on is what is important. Um, so I had to go and join a ship, which was a new ship, and we couldn't talk to anyone about it because we wanted to surprise the Japanese whalers. I had about two weeks, two and a half weeks' notice that I was going on board and had to join the ship in Mauritius while it was being done up. It had actually been bought uh, uh, off the coast of Ghana. It was doing illegal oil runs. It was an ex-whaling ship, um, Norwegian whaling ship, and uh, brought to Mauritius to be fixed up by Sea Shepherd. And uh, we spent about a month doing that, and then we had to circumnavigate Mauritius uh, to make sure it was working okay. Uh, we heard that the whalers were heading down to Antarctica. Well, why Mauritius? Is Sea Shepherd based there secretly? Can we say this on radio? <laughs> no, it was just at the time, uh, because the ship had come from Ghana. Uh, it just made sense. It made sense because it was, you know, just going south to Antarctica from there. So it was brought along the African coastline and docked in, in Mauritius. Also, it was somewhere that was a bit more or a bit less uh, obvious what we were doing. We couldn't say where where we were from or what we were doing to any of the locals. Um, and um, so when we took off from Mauritius, we had this sudden news that the whalers were heading down south. We No radar was working yet. We were still fixing the boat up, etc. We had to paint it out in the ocean. Uh, we broke down after a day and 
uh, in a storm and uh, all the instructions uh, were in Norwegian. No one spoke Norwegian on the ship. So um, uh, anyway, we, what, what the aim is, is the main aim is to seek out the uh, 5,000 tonne Japanese uh, factory ship which is a floating abattoir. Um, it is where the whales are taken to once they harpooned, and it's where they are then uh, finally killed if they're not uh, dead already and and uh, and cut up and stored. That is the Achilles heel of uh, the whaling fleet, um, and if you find that ship, you can stay on the back of the ship and we would, for weeks on end, uh, block the uh, back slipway from uh, access uh, by the uh, harpoon ships transferring the whales, which meant that if uh, they tried to get in there, they would either ram into us or we would end up ramming into them. So um, we were, uh, on that particular campaign, very successful in saving about 576 whales. We did more the following campaign. Uh, but so, so did you did you find the ship? truly military in its intent did you manage to track down yes, that, that whaler yes we did and 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 so so what happens then you're you're following it around you're you're taking photos obviously but is it preventative is it an is it an active combat that you try to stop them at sea yes, yes. so how, how does it actually work i mean take me to that moment so we've got we've got this 5000 ton factory ship mm. 5500 yep. mm-hmm. um uh, lifting a whale out of the water, or uh, okay, preparing so, to harpoon. Yeah, can can we go through? Sure. That? So so you've got this this factory ship, and it is off doing its thing. You know, uh, waiting for harpoon ships. It's generally got a, you know one or two or potentially three harpoon ships. There's also so there's usually two or three harpoon ships, and there's also Japanese government armed Japanese government security ship around, and then they've got a fuel tanker sitting up a, above the 60-degree parallel because they're not allowed to refuel uh, further south, supposedly, which they did. Um, and so once we found, and there's, you, you, you know, the, the, the people on board the ship are quite experienced in their field. Everybody that's come on, that comes on board is there for a particular purpose, um, uh, with with specific skills, um, so the the first mate uh, on our ship at the time, um, who later became our captain in a, a future campaign, uh, um, had a pretty good idea of weather wise as well as areas before that they had been spotted, and we actually found them off a place called Pritz Bay, which is uh, way down uh, south, just off the Antarctic Shelf. Um, and stayed on their tails. So what that meant was we were tailed by harpoon ships over weeks. We had harpoon ships circling us and ramming us. And um, So the, what actually goes on is a harpoon ship will seek out a whale. They're very agile, very fast, moving a lot faster than our ship. That's why we would use Zodiac's speed boats to go out there and harass them. And so the harpoon ship would uh, spear the whale, which actually is a um, uh, has, has a... Uh, uh, explosive in it um, and so when it is uh, harpooned it, the explosive uh, is activated uh, a whale can take anywhere up to 26 minutes to die and we're talking about creatures whose emotional intelligence and sense of awareness uh, scientifically um, uh, has, uh, is known to be as much, if not more, developed than the humans have. They have a sense of self-awareness. This is a slow, tortured death. Um, so um, once they uh, 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 once they harpoon the whale, it gets tied to the side of the harpoon ship, and then they uh, throw a line through to the factory ship, and it is then taken up the back slipway. So if we block that black, that back slipway, that means then that uh, it. Uh, makes the whole uh, Japanese whaling uh, inactive. And how uh, effective are they at combating you? Uh, you mentioned ramming. Mm. What's that like? Depends on the situation. You know, we we had th- we had uh, three harpoon ships uh, encircling us for three and a half hours at one point, and eventually one of them, I was up, up, on, the, up on the top of the monkey deck and had a good bird's eye view, and we, there was, you know, someone actually directing the uh the captain of the um of the whaling ship to move in 
I've actually got photos of him directing and moving in the Harpoon ship towards us and ramming us. They didn't expect our ship to be as solid as it was. So they sort of limped off and disappeared for, uh, I think it was about a week or so. Um, uh, we still managed to stay on the tail. They didn't uh, shift us. Uh, but in those moments, you've got LRADs, like long-range acoustic device, which is like a satellite dish pounding you with, with uh, high-pitched alarms and sounds, and they try to hose you off the deck with these high-powered hoses with freezing Antarctic water. Um, it's harassment, basically. Look, we did our thing as well, too. We try and prop foul them, and, you know, stop their propellers, drop things in front of them and use smoke bombs and paint bombs and, and butyric acid, which is a foul-smelling butter, rancid butter, which makes their decks inactive. Um, and so it is quite successful. I mean, that camp- first campaign uh, that I was on, we saved 576 whales out of 1,035. Second one, we saved 932 out of 1,035. But the third one that I went on a couple of years ago, um, about two and a half years ago now, um, uh, unfortunately, the Japanese government started supplying uh, those ships with military-grade technology and they were extra armed and there's laws being passed now that allow them to use force, etc. They no longer go into Antarctica anymore. They operate off their own coastline, which is still not good, but at least it keeps the Antarctic waters free. Uh, they were operating in Australian Antarctic waters with the Australian government uh, aware of it as well too. Um, so I suppose with that, um, we finish this, out of, this episode of Out of the Box um, with a freedom anthem. Um, freedom maybe can be applied in many different circumstances and many different circumstances that you've found yourself in throughout your life. Um, tell me about this song and, and I mean, maybe what, what freedom means generally. Well, this song, this is a, um, a, a musician that I've only come across uh, probably in the last year, Sil Johnson. Um, I came across him through actually Googling another musician that I came across, Dorondo. And um, uh, it's 1968, and um, the year I was born. And uh, um, I found, uh, I find this, this music very inspirational. Besides his voice, um, uh, uh, Freedom... Uh, I think is about respect and it's about uh, people respecting difference um, and expecting <coughs> and and expecting respect as well to in return. I think uh, if we do land up approaching other people that we meet with respect, I think at least we're starting off on a good a good grounding, a good foundation. And on that, of course, thank you so much to my producers, uh, Bree Jones, who's done a lot of work on this one, and Nicole DiPaolo. Glenn Lockich, thanks so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you for having me. When you hear what I've got to say I'm sure you won't be able to turn your head away talk about nobody 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 wants to be without makes no difference who you are or what color you happen to be In the sea 
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.